Welcome to For Something Greater. I am Dominic Hawley, your host, and I am so happy you are here today. This is a podcast where we dig deep into what it takes to pursue your dreams, create an impact, and be a world changer. We get real, honest, and vulnerable. We dig into the challenges, the roller coasters, the triumphs, and everything in between. So grab your coffee or your green drink, and let's dig into today's episode. So in this episode, I talk with Dana, who's the founder of Titanet Syria. We did this interview and it was so incredible. There was so much we dug into and it ended up being actually more than two hours. So what I decided to do is split it into two parts. And the first part, which is this episode, we dig into her story, her origin story, what she went through to actually get to the point of starting Titanet Syria, what she processed, what she was dealing with, where she got her inspiration and we really dig into that journey. And then the second part, which I decided to split into two parts, the second part is going to be the next episode where we dig into um, the habits that she's created, what's really important, the three steps that she thinks has been really powerful in her creating Titanet Syria and what she thinks for anybody who wants to go create an impact in the world would be beneficial for them. That are incredible, incredible um, tools for anybody who listens to it to take on. And Dina's such an incredible leader. She's so exuberant. She's so passionate about this organization that she's created. And I feel so privileged to be able to share what our conversation was. And at the end of our conversation, I felt so at peace and calm with the journey because we talk about the journey that it takes to create an impact. And so for any of you who are out to create an impact in the world, this episode series will be such a powerful impact for you. The audio is a little bit funky. And so bear with it because there's so many incredible gems in this series. I don't want you to lose that because of the audio. So bear with the audio and let's dig into the first part of this interview. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I want to introduce you to Dana. Um, what's your name? Candlelaft. Candlelaft. Yes. I it's pronounced differently in Arabic, obviously, but... How do you pronounce it in Arabic? Oh, it's actually, it's it's... It's just as strange in Arabic, but and a left because like the K and is silent. Yeah. Okay. And I don't even I, I butcher it when I oh, okay. so have a heavy accent. Yeah. So candle. Oh, okay, perfect. For now. Candle. Yeah. Okay. Um and she's the founder of Titanet Syria. And so we're gonna just dig right in to when Titanet Syria was like the first kind of like the seed in your mind. Yeah. It was okay. like you know, what were you doing when, like, something just kind of popped into your, your yeah. brain? Yeah. Honestly, it was, like, the vision for Titan at Syria, it all came at me so fast, and it was so vivid in my mind, because I think sort of the months prior to having the idea of Titan at Syria, um, sort of, I don't know if this is, like, the universe working its, yeah. its magic, but um, it sort of was paving the way, and that all makes sense when I look back at it in retrospect. Okay. Um, but basically, what happened in that moment when I had the idea, mm-hmm. so, I mean, the idea didn't come to me 
first, and then I started pursuing Hold it. Hold on, I realized a very important piece. Yes. Why yes. don't you explain what tightness theory is? Oh, okay. Because I feel like people are listening, you're like, what is this even? Okay. Let's do that. No, I mean, okay, so it's like sort of this ever-evolving thing, so I have to like stick to my one pitch. But basically, uh, we're a nonprofit organization. We work with two collectives of Syrian refugee women uh, displaced uh, either in northern Syria or in a refugee camp in Lebanon. Um, and basically, we've created an economic bridge uh, between North America and now the rest of the world and these marginalized women um, who are stuck in these refugee camps and creating economic opportunity by expanding on skill sets that they already have or that they can easily learn. Okay. Um, embroidery, knitting, and sewing, basically. So things they've learned in their childhood, things they've inherited from their grandmothers and their mothers. Why not capitalize that on that for them? Why not create an economic opportunity out of something that already exists mm -hmm. as opposed to having them sit idle in these refugee camps while their children sort of take on these economic burdens or their husbands? Because um, there's a lot of um, labor exploitation um, mm -hmm. in refugee camps or among refugees in, in, in general. So when you empower a woman um, through skill sets that she already has to earn some income, I realize that it, it starts to address quite a few societal um, issues. But yeah, that's basically it. So um, in terms of where we sell, um, we sell knitted products, embroidered accessories. Um, I guess like every year we're sort of experimenting with new products, but we, we sell through our e-commerce store uh, here in Toronto, so tightknitseria.com, which now is available worldwide. Okay. I know that sounds huge, but it's still like in the early stages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've taken over the world finally. Um, <laughs> and start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and basically we're doing markets and stuff like that, but basically just giving people around the world the opportunity to not only access these beautiful, amazing products that were handmade carefully with love, but also giving them the agency to contribute mm. to a solution to the refugee crisis, which I know is very overwhelming for a lot of us mm -hmm. to try and process like a, a humanitarian crisis of that scale. Yeah. And um, so sort of just like bringing it back down to earth and like the fact that we work with women knitting too, I think people identify a lot with that too, because it's so like, it's, it's inherent in our universal culture, yeah. basically. And it's such a personal thing. Yeah. That, like, somebody's knitted something and you buy it. You're yeah. kind of connected to them on such a, like, intimate, personal level. Exactly. And it's... Yeah. So the product itself is is this tangible connection, but really at the end of the day, we're, we're the what's so powerful about what we're doing is the emotional connection that that, mm -hmm. that tangible product um, inevitably sort of creates for both ends. Yeah. So for the producers when they're producing and for the consumers when they're making these purchases yeah. and wearing the, the, the items and yeah. sharing the stories. Yeah. Okay, so Technic Syria has two collectives. One in, just so I have it straight, yeah. so one in Lebanon and then one in Syria. Yeah, internally displaced in, in northern okay. Syria. Yeah. Okay. And are they both in refugee camps? So the one in northern Syria sort of changed shape over the years just because it's an, it's I mean, the closest thing to the where the a lot of the warfare is happening. Okay. So um, it used to be part of a, a camp for internally displaced people called the Olive Tree Camp. And then oh, sort of over the years, it's evolved into just basically this rural area that people um, go and just go and live. Yeah. Okay. And then there's various small humanitarian organizations that help sort of provide them the resources that they need. But it's a pretty dire situation at the end of the day. It's pretty bad in terms of... The resources yeah okay yeah so you have these women in either like that space that place in north 
northern Syria, yeah. and then you have the refugee camp in Lebanon. Exactly. And so, so they create the knit products, mm-hmm. and then do they get shipped over here? So somehow, because it's like the women in northern Syria, it's a very secluded place. Yeah. Like it's, or you would think so initially. You would think it's not something you can access or create a, a supply chain around. Um, even, yeah. Right. So, but through a network of volunteers that's sort of been ever growing in the region, um, we've been able to figure it out. Brilliant. And it's really just thanks to a network of volunteers that we have. Uh, mostly in southern Turkey, who help us sort of literally get make those transactions in terms of products or finances or or yarn um, uh, across the border. So we, as a Tainit Syria, we're not physically able to go into northern Syria. Um, As a Canadian with a Canadian passport, it's just not safe. So are you actually not allowed, or is it just highly advised? It's highly advised not to go. Yeah, I mean, so... The state of it now has probably probably died down a little bit, but like ISIS was a big presence there in the last oh, few years. Right. Um, so when I went, so I had the chance to go the one time, but that's sort of the origin story of Tainet Syria. Yeah. So that was in 2013 when I got inspired to start the organization. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time I was able to actually physically be present in northern Syria. Ever since then, the, the crisis there just escalated more and more and more and became sort of impossible for any sort of... Even with someone, even though I'm Syrian mm-hmm. and I have Syrian ancestry, just if I'm not from there, it, it, it's very difficult. It's also very just unsafe, yeah. Oh, wow. Kidnappings okay. and... Yeah. Very real. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we had to figure out a way to stay connected with these women, mm-hmm. despite the fact that we can't physically go there ourselves. And we were able to do that through um, just building a network of volunteers and the magic of cellular phones, which really? I believe is shaping the face of the planet in terms of, like, communicating with people and, and just, yeah, I mean, if you're able to communicate, then so much can happen after that. Um, so we work with a, a refugee lady in that collective who has a phone, okay. um, and we communicate um, just like how I communicate with my best friends every day. It's, wow. Yeah. So we exchange pictures. We exchange what I want from them, what I need from them when they think that they'll be able to get the products across the border. Um, so it's a like very direct... Very, like, I was kind of... I thought you would have some sort of, yeah. like, I don't, for lack of, like, organizational chart. Like, right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. this person talks to this person, talks to this person, talks to this person, mm-hmm. and then the women create this, and mm-hmm. then it kind of goes back up. But it sounds like it's a very direct, like... Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's direct and relatively informal, honestly. It's because we can communicate using phones, and I can have that direct sort of communication with them. I mean, this, I mean, it starts to trickle down in terms of like moving things around and yeah. um, from like one person to another when we need to finally start getting the products here. Yeah. But even there's not that many people involved. It's things are much easier than they seem once you actually start putting it into practice. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot less barriers in the world than you think there is. Yeah, because for some reason I was like, wow, it must be like relatively complicated to figure out what they're making, what's going to get made, like, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And then have it made and sent over. But 
you create it in like in such a I talk directly with probably is that lady with cell phone kind of in charge of the exactly practice? yeah she's and she knows some English so she's sort of become the like coordinator Uh, yeah and I mean obviously there's like a huge series of challenges but a lot of that isn't even due to the fact that the communication with the ladies a lot of the times it's just us because we're still sort of very grassroots and still figuring things out um but and of course there's like series of challenges like a lot of the time like the border will be closed and we're not able to get the products through the border we have to wait a couple months and then they can finally get the products how often does the border close so that's something I don't have a good grip on. It's just sort of based on what the ladies tell me, um, because it's not it's something a little bit outside my scope of understanding. Oh, interesting. Um, like who really? I'm not entirely sure what authority decides to what close the border to close why. the border. What products can come in? What products? Can, um, so I think a lot of the issue with the border is not so much that people can't go in and out, although I'm sure there's problem. I'm sure there's some challenges around that, but um, it, it does get sketchy for them like people at the border if you're trying to bring in like products through and I don't really have any sort of personal involvement in that I sort of left that to the ladies themselves to figure that out and then the volunteers on the other side of the border and they've they've managed to figure it out wow that's so incredible so it kind of leaves us in a little bit of a vulnerable position because I don't have full control over that yeah but nonetheless like the network of volunteers are so passionate about making this work and making this happen that they're actually the best ones to take care of that particular problem. And I love, I love the autonomy it gives mm-hmm. the the women because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes in organizations you take the autonomy away from the people right. you actually want the most impact with. Yeah. But it sounds like it's like they're fully empowered yeah. and they create, they decide what they want to do. They're the smart ones, honestly. That's so incredible. So, and I love that you mentioned that because. It comes to mind only really when someone mentions it, but it's like really our approach is like 100% bottom up and not mm. vice versa. There's no like big organization that's coming in here with all these like bureaucratic criteria and yeah. like specific rigid ways of doing things. We're very bottom up. We evolve from what we think is possible because the, la- the ladies have shown us it's possible mm. um, and we sort of evolve around their needs and the needs of the the geopolitics that we're working around or just the geography and that's what makes us flexible that's what makes us sort of a little bit more creative in terms of finding solutions to the Mm -hmm. problems that come up Um, because if we were like this very rigid bureaucratic organization Mm -hmm. structured and structured and Mm -hmm. I'm sure there would be quite a few limitations in terms of doing what we're doing I love that that's so great yeah so we're going to get into the origin story, but while we're here, so how long has it been since you kind of started, that you would say you started? Well, the vision came, or I mean the idea itself came in 2013, so that's when I was in the camp. A year after that was mostly um, like a pilot test, like getting hands on my first series of products and getting the story out there and sharing the story with Canadians, okay. um, first and foremost, who loved the story because they identified with it. Mm. Um, and then we we registered as a non-for-profit in 2014, so basically a year after uh, I had that experience in the camp. And then five years have now gone wow. by. Yes, crazy five-year journey. But yeah, so, I don't know if it feels like a decade or I don't know if it feels like five minutes. Yeah, it feels like, like this and then it yeah. also sort of like time just like, froze. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that happened too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. so if you look at what you've created and the impact it's had mm-hmm. on those two collectives yeah. in like a four or five-year period, yeah. what would you say has kind of been like the top two or three 
the real difference that's created for the women and families mm-hmm. that you've worked with? I mean, the obvious one is obviously just having some freaking cash. Like, yeah. that's the obvious one, obviously. So it's like they're in such a vulnerable, dire situation that even just a little bit of money can go such a long way. Um, but they need that financial support. And the thing is, so that takes me, I guess, to the second thing, which would be um, a sense of agency in their situation. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that they can actually work to earn their money as opposed to wait for a humanitarian organization to like ration yeah. it out or whatnot. Oh, what yeah. So like making money obviously addresses so many problems. And then then after that, the very fact that they can make money from a creative way, from a, a, a from a way that's already sort of personal to them mm-hmm. because we've expanded on skill sets that they've already had. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sense of creativity that comes with it. Basically, it's a, a feeling of identity and agency in a really desperate situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we take that for granted every day because we have, you know plenty of resources around us and and we're not really ever going to be left to die in the streets you know here in Canada like we're really privileged and then when you compare it to those situations where you're really holding on by a thread excuse the pun but um the fact that you feel like you the fact that you can earn some cash for a product that you made and that you made lovingly and carefully Mm -hmm. and like you weren't exploited and you weren't doing anything sketchy to get this money um, has a huge impact in terms of their sense of identity and agency, which then leads on to the third thing, which I didn't realize until doing this for the last five years, but the mental health benefits, Mm. not only from earning money and being in that, that sort of position to support and provide for your family, which of course is going to have a great sense of relief for you. But even the fact that even in the the production, even when you're knitting the scarf, you're embroidering the accessory, um, a lot of women have told us that that's actually very therapeutic for them Mm. um, because they channel a lot of their like trauma and their negative energy into something beautiful. And that's not something I made a connection to. It's not something I was expecting to happen when I first started Tight Knit Syria. Like I did obviously want to encourage the creative sort of spirit that I had witnessed when I went... um, for the first time, which we'll we'll talk yeah. about the origin story later, but um, uh, the mental health benefits that come from actually producing a product, I, I was not aware of. So it's like it's like hitting all these birds with one stone, basically. So providing mm. them some therapy that happens to also help them earn an income. So wow, yeah, yeah. It's amazing when like there's so many impacts to uh, actions that you're not even aware of. And that's so great. Okay, let's get into your origin story. Okay. So so you have Syrian background. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. So did you grow up in Canada? Yes. Okay. So born and raised in Canada. And my, so throughout my life, my childhood especially, my only understanding or connection of Syria was, was the, the summer long vacations that we would take uh, to Syria. Mm. So we would go stay with relatives for two months at a time. Um, my aunt and uncle are actually, they still live in Damascus in the capital city in Syria. Oh, they still live they there? They still live there. Oh, wow, okay. So we would go, we would visit, spend two months, and really it was just this beautiful, exotic place that we would escape to every now and then. Other than that, it was, I always say this, it was already, it, to be honest, to be frank, it really, at the end of the day, was just a backdrop to my Canadian life. Mm. Um, I sort of, I mean, I guess we all do, especially growing up. We kind of want to push our ethnic side mm. to the side so we can sort of just 
focus on fitting in and yeah. sort of like really embracing the Canadian culture, which um, other than poutine and maple syrup, like growing <laughs> up in the suburbs, like my life was so easy, like the mall and boys and just getting new clothes, like really yeah. that's the only thing that sort of encompassed my mind. So Syria was just that that place that I knew my parents were from and that we would go visit every now and then, but it didn't really have any sort of deeper significance. Mm-hmm. And th- that was when there was no crisis. There was that, no, no crisis. Was, like, Life was settled. good. Yeah, was, everything was fine. Everything was fine. From right? my perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, we could easily go visit our, our relatives in Damascus. Um, we didn't have to think twice about anything. And the thought of what happened over the last few years happening just didn't seem like a possibility. Yeah, unfathomable. It just, um, it, Syria's just been a very rigid country. I mean, it's a dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is, it, it's meant to be rigid like that. And I didn't question the sort of social injustices that were taking place because it was so outside my mental scope. How old were you when you were going off? Exactly. I was, this was from like zero to 10 years old. Yeah. In my teenage years, we barely went, if at all. I don't, I think the last time I went was when I was 10. I mean, in that in that context of my my childhood, my teenage years. So my teenage years, it just faded more and more into the background. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, had very little significance for me. Yeah. Mm. But that being said, I guess like for all of us, when I turned twenty, um, I started having like existential questions, sort of really? like come like, to mind. Oh, just like oh wait a minute, there's more to my identity than just being Canadian. Like I'm part of an ancestry from like one of the most or if not the oldest city in the world so I started making these connections in my brain my neurons started to make connections um so then I had these ideas of like okay maybe I will go spend a year in Syria and learn the language finally Mm. my mom's always attempted to teach us the language but (laughs) we're just like terrible um my dad was like my dad was okay my dad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so to get into like more personal sphere of things, my mom was sort of um, really always trying to preserve our Syrian identity okay. and keep us and wanted us to learn the language and like learn the food and everything like that. And my dad was sort of on the opposite side of the spectrum where he was like, don't worry about it. Like you really? live in Canada now, just focus on being Canadian. And why did they move over? So mostly for economic reasons. So this okay. was like in 1990 and um, I had my aunt was the first person to move uh, to Canada. And then, like, obviously there's a lot of, like, employment opportunity and just a capitalist society, right? It offers us a different series of freedom. Yeah. Um, And then she suggested the idea to my parents who were newlyweds at the time, and they took that risk. They just packed their bags and went. And I know it was really hard on my mom because, like, she's really close with her family and, like, um, Syria means the world to her, obviously. Um, but really, it's just a different level of um, freedom that you don't have in Syria. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. On a political, social, and economic level. Um, so, And I'm glad they did because obviously the person I am today is thanks to a lot of the Canadian values that I was able to adopt, mm-hmm. you know? Just like mm-hmm. being tolerant, being nice, mm-hmm. being not that nobody else in the world is those things, but I feel like there is um, something about being Canadian that is sort of really powerful um in terms of our canadian values oh interesting yeah 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 i just yeah just because we grow up in a very multicultural society yeah Yeah. and i think we have i don't know obviously like there's issues in our society and we have to talk openly about that 
But for the most part, I think, like, the fact that I've grown up with friends from all different parts of the world mm-hmm. really shapes your identity as a person in this, in yeah. this, on this planet. You can't segregate and just right. associate. Yeah, I got right. it. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so you're 20... Yeah. Your mother kind of brought, like, the Syrian Bendy, but yeah. you never really paid too much attention. No, I was busy. <laughs> and then you're like, maybe I should go back and spend a year. Yeah, learn the language. Yeah. Um, and then? And then, um, not too long after that, so I guess I was, so I was in university, so that was sort of my main focus. So these were plans for basically once I graduate, okay. the environmental studies at York. At the age of 23, the crisis started, and just from there on, it just, Oh, no, at the age of 21, actually. That's when it started. Um, that was 2011 when um, the first demonstrations were happening in Syria. And then from there on, started escalating into um, absolutely just catastrophic so, situation. So I actually want to go deeper into that. So mm-hmm. walk me through the experience of kind of seeing the demonstrations, mm-hmm. both for you and your family yeah. and like your Syrian community here. Mm-hmm. Like what was it like being here Mm -hmm. and really not being able to do much aside from just watching Mm -hmm. it kind of unfold from where you had the demonstrations to you know it just kind of continuing that way what was it like for you and oh my god I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of what I was feeling in that time is like the pretense to why Titan Series started to begin Mm -hmm. with it was a confusing time for me because the only understanding I was getting of Syria was coming from family members mm. who had their set of opinions. Yeah. Um, and they're all valid, of course, because they've all grown up, a lot of them have grown up in Syria and they have perspectives on Syria that I'll never have. Yeah. So it was sort of like just, um, the only information I was getting was from the opinions of my my relatives and my, my the network around me. Um, and then the media, which was sort of quite narrow in terms of explaining what was happening in Syria. So I was like everybody else in that sense of like trying to understand like this, the, the complexities of this, this country and how it could possibly end up in the situation that it is. So mm. I feel like I identified a lot with non-Syrians at the time who were trying to digest this humanitarian crisis and all the political complexities around it. Yeah. So for me, I was just getting... It was just like a storm, honestly, in my brain because what was happening in Syria that escalated eventually, I hate to say it, but a civil war. So there was like a certain dichotomy there in terms of people who wanted the regime to stay and people who wanted the regime to go. Mm-hmm. And that applied to the Syrian community here as well. There was a divide oh, wow. um, because people, some people here believe we should keep the regime and other people believe like, no, we need the revolution to move on and actually pursue democracy for me I mean I was trying to formulate my own understanding of it my own opinion but it was almost impossible because I wasn't seeing anything firsthand I didn't really have friends in Syria that I can call up and get their input like Mm. I had a lot of relatives but a lot of my relatives have also built a life outside of Syria as well Mm -hmm. I just felt really disconnected I felt really hopeless yeah because I was going to say what was it like on a day-to-day, you would go to school. Yeah. I'm sure you were seeing the media reports come out, mm-hmm. like like all these horrible videos and everything like that. Yeah. I would imagine at a certain point, you, like, there was a piece of you that was like, I don't know what to do, you know? Yeah, I definitely reached a point of, like, full-on paralysis because I was just, I mean, I always thought 
of myself as like a humanitarian person, someone who would get involved if like a humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. like hit. And like I always tried to sort of like do what I can when humanitarian crises were unfolding elsewhere. Yeah. But this one was like the closest to home I've ever had to experience. And again, I lacked the understanding of what was really happening there. So I would see these videos of people being murdered by their own government on a daily basis. And there's literally nothing I can can fucking do. And I was just like, I reached a point of paralysis, if not depression, if not just a complete feeling of hopelessness. And um, the worst part, and like... The, the existential side of that was like a feeling of like I have no agency in this world mm. um this this is so beyond me as one person to contribute to a solution or to help in any way and nonetheless I did try to do those things obviously like I would go to fundraisers here in Toronto yeah that just made it so much worse because a lot of the fundraisers that were happening were just dem- were just showing you like on a big giant screen what was our what was happening in Syria so all oh, these right. violent images which I feel like is necessary because you do need to witness those things in order to change internally. Mm-hmm. But I would leave these fundraisers feeling that much more hopeless. Mm. Um, feeling like this crisis is so beyond anything I can do to help. And then just going home and like just wanting to like crawl into a fetal position and cry. Like because I just felt like there's nothing I can yeah. do. So that's how things were for a long time. For, Yeah. I guess two years, two whole years. Two years. Two years. And I think this is like this is why I actually wanted to ask that is because I think often in humanitarian crises or things that are happening that shouldn't be happening, yeah. like human trafficking, right? Or you know, people getting killed, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever is against kind of what should be happening. Right. There's there tends to be a paralysis. Mm-hmm. Like I know I had that about human trafficking. Like mm-hmm. I knew about human trafficking when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and then I was just like I don't know what to do mm-hmm. for like years. Right. And so, but I think there's a group of people, and this is specifically why I created the podcast, that are not okay with just going to fund your research and giving money. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a group of people like you and me and other people who are like, I actually, there's something, there's something more mm-hmm. than I'm committed to doing mm-hmm. and often get stuck. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So for you, it was two years of like yeah. going to fundraisers, but then resignation is like, I don't like, I don't know what to do. You know? I felt so small in that time. I just yeah. felt like, just it was everything that was happening in Syria was so opposite of my moral code that I thought I was carrying around with me and the fact that I wasn't doing anything that I felt was impactful or meaningful was also fueling that sense of like uh, oh like just that I don't even know that sense of internal conflict because it was like I thought my whole life I'm a person with agency and would take charge in a situation that that serious and um and then I, for two whole years, I was doing nothing. I was just processing what was happening. But looking back in retrospect, I realized that's exactly what I was doing those two years. I was digesting what was happening. Yeah. Not that there really was time to digest anything because people were dying by the hundreds on a daily basis. Yeah. But nonetheless, it was necessary for me to actually have that time to go into that deep hole to really confront who I am and what my role is in this world. Um, Because I would have loved to not care, really. It would have been great to just move on with my life, go 
work a corporate job and whatever and and just focus on my personal life but I realized I was just completely against my DNA at the end of the day Mm. um and those two years looking back in retrospect though was necessary for me to 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 process what was happening and come to the realization that I am a person that wants to contribute to change and that mm-hmm. is and no matter how difficult that is going to be for me it's it's not something um it's it there's no alternative to that so yeah. that's why things were so dark in those two years because I was confronting the fact that I am not willing to not be a change maker basically to not be someone on this planet who shares the world with um all these other people and I, I like caring about myself was just not an option um so uh, in order to really realize that, I did have to confront um, some dark layers. <laughs> yeah, and I love that you said that and gave the space. Because I think for people who really have such a strong, deep connection and commitment to making a difference, mm-hmm. when you're not making a difference, mm-hmm. you, I know in my own personal experience, is like you you feel guilty and you make, you beat yourself up for, for sure. making that difference. Yeah. And yes, you, like horrific things happen and you kind of needed those two years to digest and actually mm-hmm. get to a point where we're going to get into it. It's yeah. like you were actually in a space to be like, to see what was possible that you could do. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think for people who are so strong and committed to making a difference, mm-hmm. it's easy to beat yourself up about it and be like, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And then just, you know, get further and further and further into that hole. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you had those two years. Yeah. And then you're getting to the, closer to the end of your university. Yes. So one important thing to mention uh, was just through, just randomly, I so I was studying environmental studies and I didn't really know what in that degree to pursue exactly just because it's so broad and holistic. Yeah. Um, so that also added another layer of confusion because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, there's so many problems in the world. Like, where do I start? Like, what things should I focus on? But the holistic aspects of my degree, I realize now actually contributed a lot to the way I see the world now where everything is connected to something and nothing mm-hmm. is disconnected. But then I actually got, I was looking, I was seeking out an internship in my, my university um, years. I took a semester off specifically to do an internship. To do an internship in what? That was the question. Nonetheless, I did like an internship program or I was working with like a guidance counselor and then they happened to find uh, an opening at a nonprofit organization called Fashion Takes Action based okay. in Toronto. And I, fashion wasn't anything really in my interest. It's not something I ever, ever envisioned doing or like, I like clothes obviously (laughs) like anyone else, but in terms of taking it a step further, it's not something that ever crossed my, my mind. Um, but nonetheless, they had an opening at this internship. It was a good fit. So I interned with Fashion Takes Action for six months, not realizing that everything I was learning in those six months would build up to a little bit of a platform for me to jump off once I got that inspiration um, Mm. in Turkey slash northern Syria. So what happened? So I was in my last year at York. Uh, I took the first semester off to do the Fashion Takes Action internship for six months. And then my, and then I, and then what happened? Oh yeah. And then right before my last semester, I, my cousin, who was studying at a university in Washington, D.C., okay. called George Mason 
um, and they have a school of conflict resolution. So my cousin, who's sort of in my age group, who's had the chance to, who's lived, um, who's grown up in Syria, but then she moved to Montreal to do her university, and then she went to Washington, D.C. to do her master's with George Mason. She was very involved in the Syrian the Syrian revolution. So I always was inspired by her. The fact that she was like this young woman and just mm-hmm. like just so engaged and so outspoken and just like constantly like just being outspoken at a time where speaking up was really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for Syrians. And um, she made a lot of sacrifices for that because in Syria, if you speak out there, you're done so. If you're speaking out outside the country, you're not going back to Syria for a long time. You get blacklisted, basically. Really? Yeah. So these are part of, like, the political complexities that I had to, like, digest over yeah, those years. Like, realize, like, I knew t- I knew um, Syria was a dictatorship, and I knew social injustices were happening day by day by day. And I remember when we would go as, I would go as a child to Syria, and my mom would be like, don't say anything about the president. Don't say anything about the politics here. Like, keep your mouth shut. Wow. And I never understood why. Yeah. Um, and uh, I realized because it was a very oppressive uh, mm. political system there. Um, and uh, so anyways, my cousin, who's like this outspoken activist and who was just like, just doing a lot for the revolution, she always really inspired me. Um, and then she sent me an application for a course that was going to take place in Turkey for two weeks. Um, And the topic of discussion around the course was peaceful resistance in Syria. Oh, interesting. So, exactly, interesting. But that's all it was to me at the time, was interesting. was like, okay, two weeks in Turkey, yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) Two weeks abroad, away from, you know, (laughs) North York, sign me up. Oh, I get to learn something about Syria and maybe, like, just know something, okay, that's great, and then basically come back, finish my last semester, and graduate, it's just perfect. Mm. So a lot of the reasons at that moment in time were quite selfish, was like, cool, I just want to travel. And uh, although I was still digesting all those negative feelings about Syria, I still felt like there was no hope in terms of me being a a change maker. So that's why the way I perceived that opportunity was just on a very superficial level because I still couldn't comprehend the fact that maybe I can be more involved. So I applied and got in, I was so excited, not realizing that this two weeks would completely change the course of my life, Mm. um, this far anyways. Yeah. So, uh, so this is March, so the March 2013, we go to Turkey. I remember it starts in Istanbul and we go all across Turkey. It was such an incredible program. Wow. Yeah, we so much was done in two weeks. <laughs> and the thing that started to really impact me the most um, throughout that trip was that I was hearing firsthand stories from Syrian refugees who had come from Syria into Turkey. Okay. And Turkey was taking like millions of Syrian refugees. And I was hearing their firsthand experiences. And I was talking to them face to face, and a lot, a lot of the times they would talk to the classroom in a really candid way. What was so impactful about that moment in time was that, so, like, all of a sudden, this this mental barrier that I didn't really understand what it was prior to that, but I realized this barrier of me being a Syrian Canadian living in a privileged life in Canada, and these Syrian young Syrian youth, a lot of the time, mm. who were who were born and raised in Syria, 
um, and who lived there their whole life and were now experiencing this really violent regime backlash, um, watching their country basically unravel right in front of them. Um, I felt that barrier dissolve a little bit. Oh. I understood that we had completely different backgrounds, yeah. but there was that sort of unifying thing and the universal sort of values around like, yeah, we need to fight for our freedom um, no matter where you are in the mm. world. And I think that's what a lot, uh, what annoys me about the media a lot is that none of those stories were getting properly translated. It was always about the rebels. It was always about the dictator. It was always about the extremists. Yeah. It was always about the death tolls, but it was never about the stories of the youth and what they wanted from Syria, what they wanted. So uh, it's like, it was really yeah. hard for non-Syrians to understand what what are they fighting for. Like, I know a lot of people were well-versed in the subject because they would read on it every day, but I think generally speaking... Um, it was just those news bites. News bites and generally was about yeah. the death tolls or like this bomb fell here, this bomb fell there. But yeah. nobody really understood that demonstrations and protests were taking place because people were asking for at first they were asking for reforms from mm -hmm. the regime and then they were asking for democracy like it's in this century i think yeah we should be asking for democracy and and the united states should be supporting those those needs but i don't want to get into the politics of it because that was just <laughs> that really messy but nonetheless there was sort of this like sense of connection in terms of like we both me and the refugee that I was talking to at the time shared this underlining value of like just peaceful resistance in the world um, and um, uh, just wanting democratic values. Mm. So that barrier started to dissolve a little bit and I realized I wasn't that different from them. Oh, okay. um, and so it, do you, I just yeah. do you think that was an important barrier to actually be able to be like, like they're actually not that different. Because just in how it ends up, mm -hmm. we're like, well, they're over there. Mm -hmm. And not because we don't care, but it's just because you, you disassociate. You disassociate, like, exactly. Because yeah. logically, that's what your brain's going to do yeah, automatically exactly. if you're not, you're not with that person 24 hours a day. So yeah. that was huge because it was a complete change in perspective. It was like, oh, these are just young people like me. And I'm young like them. And the commonalities in terms of our our universal values and our sharing our Syrian ancestry too um, came into play a lot. So you're connecting with these young people. Mm -hmm. That barrier is starting to yeah. lower. Yes. And then talking through okay. the rest of the time. So then that's happening for two weeks straight. And then I'm, I'm starting to feel a sense of agency. I'm starting to feel like, oh, there's got to be something I can do to help. And... One thing I want to say is that before this trip, being Syrian-Canadian to me felt like conflicting things. Mm. Like those were butting heads. Like those two aspects of my identity were conflicting. Like I wasn't able to find the middle ground between those two aspects of my identity. Mm. When I went on this trip, I realized the fact that I'm the Syrian-Canadian hybrid is actually something very powerful that I can channel and I can do something with. Because that means I come from the complete other side of the world with a completely different series of resources that we can try and tap into. Um, and I can at least try and offer and serve these young people who are actually putting their life on the line. That's one thing that's always gonna be different between me and them though. Like they were literally putting their life on the line for their yeah. country. I could always go back to Canada and be back in my safe. Place. So the very, I realized the very least I can do is at least 
channel some of my resources that I had back home in Canada. So all of a sudden, my Syrian Canadian identity was no longer conflicting with each other. It, it, it felt like a bridge. Again, that was sort of like the internal process that was happening at the time. And did you have guilt initially mm-hmm. about being in Canada? For sure. The guilt actually lasted the entirety of the, it lasts till this day. Like I'm yeah. helping from the shelter of my sweet, sweet home here in Canada. And people are literally like dying for, for yeah. a, a democratic Syria. So that's but never going to go. Like you, you, there's, you have this like, I would imagine overwhelming guilt. Yes. But then you also saw like a ray of this is actually beneficial. Exactly. In whatever I've been given yeah. is actually beneficial. To serve. And mm-hmm. I can see where I can still feel guilty. Because sure. so the guilt at the time or prior to that experience was a lot of the source of the paralysis was like, yeah, survivor's guilt. It's like my parents only moved to Canada in 1990. Like we just missed this revolution by an inch. Yeah. But the difference was at the time it was causing me to feel paralysis and feel like that guilt was so overwhelming I couldn't do anything and I felt ashamed if I did anything and then when I was actually talking to these people and they made me feel totally normal and they didn't Mm. even really care that I was Syrian Canadian like we just bonded on the fact that we were young people in the step world I realized okay logically speaking I come from a privileged background I got very lucky in life being honest and open about that and saying it out loud isn't isn't anything to be ashamed of. It's just the way things turned out to be. But having awareness around that and using those privileges to help people that aren't in a privileged position definitely feels a lot better at the end of the day, especially mm-hmm. someone who wants to be a change maker. Like, use your resources at hand, you know? Like, and it's not gonna always be money. Sometimes it's just gonna be your network or yeah. whatever, the educational system we have here or anything anything so um I think that's such a good distinction that it's I think it's easy to feel guilty mm-hmm. but you can actually turn that around yeah. as a way to contribute and make a difference as opposed to just staying in the space of being guilty for right however long so the one thing that was so important about that trip too is was understanding what feelings were making me productive and what feelings were making me unproductive. Because if I had to speak from a completely objective place, it's either you're gonna be a productive member of this world and you're gonna try and contribute. You might fail, you might not do anything, but you're gonna at least try. Or yeah. you can go home and cry and feel bad for yourself that you were born and raised in Canada. So it was like, I was, from a logical perspective, from an objective perspective, I was able to distinguish what feelings will make me productive, what feelings will make me unproductive. And as soon as I was able to distinguish those, or process those feelings and distinguish them, that changed everything. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's I, that's such a good, I think, thing to pull out for mm-hmm. anybody who really wants to make a difference mm-hmm. and be a change maker, mm-hmm. is like, get into a place yeah, I could go and curl up in bed and just feel guilty mm-hmm. and, like, awful about everything mm-hmm. that's happening. And, or I could go do something else and mm-hmm. actually let me look at what makes me feel productive and mm-hmm. what actually, you know. So you were doing all, it sounds like it was a trip of, like, a lot of, like. <sighs> crazy. It was a tornado. It was deep like, work. Because so much was happening externally. Yeah. Like, it was one thing after another, like, talking to this person, talking to, th- so we were talking to, like, a whole range of people. So we were talking to, like, first-hand witness people who had just come from Syria and who had witnessed some fucked up shit. 
And then we were talking to, like, politicians in Turkey and, like, trying to sort of interrogate them about, like, the policies around, like, um, refugee camps in in Turkey. Um, And then, uh, I don't know, it was just, like, a whole series of things that were happening externally and then, if if not more internally, was happening as well. So, basically, how I was processing everything at the time, so, like, these my mental barriers were starting to dissolve. I was starting to able to process my emotions better from a more logical standpoint. Yeah. And then the main question that basically appeared in my head on like a neon light was what is my role? What mm-hmm. can I do? And that question had no answer for the entirety of the two weeks, but I went home to Canada finally with that answer. So that leads up basically to the origin story. <laughs> Should we go into it? Yes. Okay. Finally. All right. <laughs> so, um, so the origin story. Okay. So the two. But actually, I yes. loved, and I really want to make this point here. Yes. I think people often talk about the origin story mm-hmm. as it's like that's where it began. Yeah. But like as we just talked about, there is like two years prior. Preemptive. More, right? Oh my god, and so necessary. It was paving the way for me to have this realization. If I did not have that crisis, if I did not have that internal conflict where I had to really confront myself um, and it really process my emotions, I don't think the answer would have come about the way that it did. Yeah. It came about the way that it did because I was ready to see it. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. I think, I know I often struggled and felt paralyzed because you'd hear these origin stories mm-hmm. and it's like well I, I don't have an idea like right, that exactly. like you know what's wrong with me mm-hmm. but I think what's often missed in talking about is is the amount of like inner struggle, struggle you, you did and like conversation yeah. you had and yeah. everything like that yeah. and you went on a trip right that actually had you like be in action and discovering it mm-hmm. um but I wanted to like make like set that as a thing because I think talking about the origin story separate as if it's the the place where it begins yeah. it's a huge disservice exactly and I'm so glad yeah. you're clarifying that because that is so true have faith in your struggle because the odds yeah. are that it's preempting something amazing yeah um because unfortunately for really like for for that that transformative change that everybody wants to continually evolve into the better person that they know they can be you have to go to dark places you have to struggle and you have to ask really hard questions that you might not have answers to for a really long time but it doesn't mean you're not going to have the answer eventually Mm. and I love the fact that you've distinguished so clearly and articulately the difference between the origin story and all the things that happened before it how the origin story is Probably rarely ever the actual starting point yeah. of um, of whatever vision that you're manifesting. This is so good for me to hear because I often I would just like hear like stories and just feel bad. Yeah, it was like clearly something's missing. No, no, right? No, and uh, and for people it looks different. For you, it was a two two year period. For other people, it could be like a five or ten year period. Oh yeah, right. But I think as long as you're like actually searching and discovering yeah. and taking action somewhere yeah. to continue discovering, mm-hmm. it's okay that you don't know what to do. Absolutely. As long as you're not, like, sitting in your room under covers, like, drinking wine and eating popcorn every day. Exactly. you're, like, so upset and yeah. you don't know what to do. No matter how shitty you feel about yourself, always try and challenge those aspects of you because they're there for a reason. Like, there's a whole spectrum of human emotions we're supposed to process. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like, the 
life would be so boring if we couldn't compare our happy feelings to yeah. our absolutely terrible feelings. You wouldn't even know the difference. Yeah. Um, so you can't, I feel like you really can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, and in China Tzu's case, it's just a very vivid sort of manifestation of that, of like how a, such a dark period really made room for light to shine in. Because if it was already bright to begin with, yeah. I probably wouldn't have seen any ray of light shining through my window, right? Yeah. Mentally speaking. So also it makes you stronger in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that you can overcome such a mountainous feeling of whatever it is that you're feeling, it makes you a stronger person at the end of the day too. So yeah. always remember that. You're, yeah. I don't think... I don't know, I feel like struggle, like it would really suck to think that struggle is just happening without any deeper purpose. Yeah. I, right? It would be pretty depressing. It would be pretty depressing, yeah. Like, oh, you're just feeling <laughs> shitty feelings for, for the heck of it. Like, I, I feel like it is, there is a very impactful reason that that's happening. Yeah. And the, what makes it so much worse, though, is that you don't know why at the yeah. time, but you just have to have a little bit of faith. Or just, like, just focus on your health and try to overcome it, and then... um Whatever answers you're looking for will eventually yeah. make it right. I love that. I'm, I'm so glad we are able to distinguish that because I think for people who are committed to making change, you feel things on such a deep level. Yeah. And when you don't feel like you're making a difference, yes. it's almost easier to just be resigned and cynical yeah. and just shut that piece of you off. Right. Right? Right. Um, and so I love that we talked about that mm-hmm. because I think that's not that – provides a whole other level of, mm-hmm. like, uh, space for people to actually be like, okay, I'm not out there creating mm-hmm. an organization right now yeah. to fight whatever I want to do or, like, create this change, but I'm actually, like, what I'm doing right now and, like, the inner work on myself or I'm going on trips to, you know, hear and discover things mm-hmm. is so, so, so critical. Absolutely. And you should, like, I think that's so important. People just tend to get paralyzed and then resign as cynical and then just live their life like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, at one point I cared about this and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to make a difference, mm-hmm. so I just shut that off. Right. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you walk around just yeah. resign as cynical for the rest of your life. No, you have to have faith in your struggle and you have to address it and you have to confront it because it has a lot of information for you and it's sort of the building blocks of who you are in the long run. Mm. The only annoying thing is like they're the building blocks, like these the, the struggle, but you don't really know what the ultimate building is actually going to look like. So that's mm. where, that also adds a lot of confusion. But you have to have faith that because you're an empathetic person, because you care so much, you are going to struggle with those aspects of the world in terms of figuring out how can I contribute. Mm. Um, oh, that's so good. Honestly. I know that's such a great point though. We could probably, end, so we could probably end, end here because that. that's the just story is, is never <laughs> the starting point. It never ever is. Like there should be a book written on this. Yeah, no, there's always a preemptive really like I think long struggle before that. Yeah. That's so good. Okay. Okay, so then let's get into kind of where you yeah. had your right. moment. So then um so the two weeks was coming to an end, and my cousin and I, honestly, we were like I'm not going to lie, like, we were a little bit high on life because we're, like, we just really felt what the refugees were feeling and what, what the, uh, sort of, like, that energy and that passion for something so much bigger than that, just them as an individual. Yeah. So contagious, obviously. So me and my cousin, we felt very sort of just energetic and really passionate and, like, just we have to get more involved. 
And basically, so the two weeks were coming to a close. All the American students had gone back to Washington, D.C. Okay. My cousin and I decided to actually stay an extra day in southern Turkey, because that's where we were at that point. And it seemed crazy in retrospect, but we decided to um, spend the day to cross the southern Turkish border into northern Syria and go visit a camp for internally displaced people. Um, I hate, I hate, sometimes I hate using the word refugees and people and stuff like that Mm because it just, it just, it doesn't give you a face to the people, the vibrant animated people that we got to meet. Um, But just for the sake of conversation, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say that. How we did that, it was mostly her. Uh, okay. She knows the language. She's fluent. She has quite a, quite a network. Um, she, she knew some humanitarian organizations in the region, okay. um, in that area. So she communicated with them, told them that, that her and her cousin Dana from <laughs> Mississauga, Ontario, um, wanted to visit the Olive Tree Camp, which is what it was called at the time, okay. in northern Syria. Um, and we found a humanitarian organization that works in that camp and who was able to host us. And then another series of, like, really dark sort of um, storm-like thoughts occupied my mind again because now I was, like, all freaked out again about visiting a camp full of Syrians who have been completely stripped of their livelihoods, completely Mm. stripped of just their lives and children who have been stripped of their childhood. And then that whole sense of, like, me being born and raised in Canada in a privileged life and not even knowing the language fluently, yeah. and uh, I was just, I was really paranoid that they were going to hate me, basically. Oh, wow. Eh? Which is like, again, looking in retrospect, that's a very superficial feeling to feel, but I, I did get very anxious. I was like, they're going to hate me. That survivor's guilt and all of that, everything yeah. was like starting to come up again. The experience turned out to be the opposite of that. So at one series of events after another, we finally cross this really sketchy border mm-hmm. please don't ask me more info it's just, we just <laughs> somehow there's like it wasn't a formal like passport control it was like two military guards i don't even know what side of what the army answering? they're yeah. from which military from which country my cousin was sort of taking all care of that basically asking me not to say anything because um it's really not necessarily a good thing for two uh, North American <laughs> foreigners to be in that region at the time so I was kind of just staying quiet and like just yeah. whatever playing it cool just being a wallflower because there was really not much I could do in that situation other than just follow my cousin were you concerned going in or because I because I, I, I know like often when you're in the actual experience yeah it seems somewhat normalized. Yeah, it was. So it's like, oh, I'll just cross the border. It's not that big of a deal. It was normalized because we were just so. We just felt very passionate. Mm. We just, like, after two weeks of, like, hearing these revolutionary stories, these youth who were doing all these amazing, like, peaceful resistance in Syria. Nonetheless, so we would just felt so inspired and so motivated and so passionate that. Yeah, at that moment, it was very normalized. To, mm-hmm. I'm surprised I wasn't like, yeah, let's go fight in Aleppo or something. Like, because that's like, was the state of mind that I was in. Wow. Um, but that also, alongside the, oh gosh, are they going to hate me? So mm-hmm. it was just, it was also another series of confusing thoughts. But yeah, so it was normalized in the context of the experiences that we were having then. Yeah. Keep in mind, I didn't even tell my parents. Like, it was a pretty <laughs> irresponsible decision. But sometimes you've got to just follow your own your own heart and do what you think is right to you. Yeah. Would I suggest this to anybody? No. Like, be responsible. At least notify your embassy if you're going to do something crazy like that. 
but that's just the extent of how we felt. So we crossed this. And, yeah. I, and I want to also distinguish yes. now, five years later, yeah. you look at it, it's like, that's actually crazy. Yeah. yeah. And I think people could think like, wow, that would have taken a lot of courage. Uh-huh. But I think what's also important to distinguish is like in that moment, mm-hmm. in that context, yeah. it was normal. It was so normal. Right? I wasn't... Scared. So it wasn't yeah. like you were this like person who had an insane amount of courage. No, you were, like, there was a no courage person necessary. Who took action? You know what I mean? Yeah. Who took action. Yeah. Because I think it's often easy to be like, oh, clearly they have more courage. I would never cross the border yeah. into Syria. No, right. Like, I was born in the suburbs my whole life. Yeah. Like this is not a situation I ever imagined myself in. Yeah. 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 But in that moment, it felt it was right. like this is the action that's that's necessary there for me to at take. the time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Um. I mean, it did take some courage, obviously. Like, yeah. some people tried to reason with us and be like, oh, are you sure this is a good idea? Like, maybe you want to think twice about this. And then, obviously, like, some thoughts, like, crossed my mind where I was like, wait a minute, like, am I going to be alive tomorrow? Like, what's going on? But nonetheless, my cousin and I, we decided, the two of us, to, to make that move. Okay. And um, it felt right for us. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, in a courageous moment, yeah, you're going to need a lot of courage. But if it if it feels right to you... That's kind of all you need to know sometimes. Because yeah. in retrospect, I'm like, oh, that's so crazy. But then I'm also like, that was so necessary. That just had to happen in order for us to break that barrier, that yeah. that geographic barrier, but also that emotional barrier, mm-hmm. um, and just create a bridge between these really marginalized people who feel so far away from us when they're actually like really not that distant. So taking the leap to kind of break that invisible barrier I mean, invisible and tangible, because obviously we had to cross some sort of border. <laughs> the two military guards. The two military guards, literally. It was like a trail and two military guards. Like, no passport control. And, uh, yeah, so it was just the necessary thing to do. And sometimes you have to do things outside conventional ways in order to shake things up a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. So we did that, and I'm freaking out. Okay, so I start to get nervous when we're... We're in the car on our way. So we've crossed in the border, or we've crossed the border. We're back in another cab on our way to the, the camp in northern Syria. Now I'm freaking out for kind of superficial reasons because the whole, like, um, survivor's guilt and the whole privileged aspect of my life started coming up again. And I was just, like, so convinced that these people were going to hate the fact that I came to visit. But it turned out to be the opposite. So we go in, and everybody is being so warm and welcoming, like, off the bat. I couldn't mm. even believe it. And it's that part, okay, so that part of the entire two weeks was the most surreal because I want to describe it, but it's like, it's so hard to describe it in words because it's just like, you had to be there. You had to like see it because it's like, it doesn't even seem real, but. So did you go with a like person from a humanitarian organization? So I skipped a couple parts. So we went to, so there's a humanitarian organization called Moran Foundation. Okay. Um, They're rather small. Their office was based in Southern Turkey. So we first went there. They gave us like hats. Okay. And the vest with the humanitarian's name on it. Okay. So we didn't just go, like, completely. So it was kind of imagining you just, like, rolling yeah, up. Yeah, hey! Like, getting out and being like, hey! No, there was some, okay. yeah. We were hosted by this humanitarian okay. organization. They gave us vests. They gave us hats. They gave us advice. They gave us tips. Don't say this. Say this. I don't remember what they told us necessarily anymore, but um, we didn't go completely, like, okay. yeah, blank. So we had the hats. We had the vests. So people identified us as part of this humanitarian organization, um, but nonetheless, they. But did somebody go with you, or oh, and then two of you? so with the two of us and people from the humanitarian organization. Okay. okay. I think there was like three people who were who were um, 
hosting us. And okay. is host the right word? Who are basically accommodating us, supporting us. Hosting. Hosting. <laughs> yeah. Seems kind of weird. It's like a refugee camp. But anyways, yeah. So basically they were guiding us, let's okay. say, guiding us through the camp. But at some point, it's almost like it was inevitable for you to sort of start having your own experience and sort of yeah. going off on your own yeah. because you would go in there and then all of a sudden I was surrounded literally surrounded by a fractal of girls of all ages who were just like so excited to see a fresh face wow and like the thing that would was freaking me out the most prior to that was like oh they're gonna hate me because i'm a foreigner or from or like i look different and i don't know the language and whatever but those were actually the things that were exciting them the most they're like thank you you came from another country to come acknowledge what we're going through Mm. and like other than that it was like I remember, like, one girl, like, touching my hair and being like, wow, you're so beautiful. What do you study in school? Where did you come from? What is Canada like? All these really casual conversations in this really messed up sort of environment. Yeah. So an IDP camp, so camp for internally displaced people. So it's exactly like a refugee camp, but it's inside the country. So people displaced inside the country. And it's basically, like, what you would imagine, I'm assuming, if what you're imagining is quite animated because it's, like, tense with like the UN stamped on it. There's like kids playing with muddy ropes. There's like literally mud to our shins almost. Um, it's just like not a good situation yeah. for anybody. It's just, it's it's a mess. And there's like mud everywhere and it's like not a good place to be. But the people were so beautiful and like the contrast of like their human spirit and like how crappy of an environment they were forced to be in mm. was like also a little bit hard to process. but. So all these girls of all these different ages are so excited to see me. I'm trying to communicate with them in Arabic. I'm basically fluent now, I'd like to say. That's not true. <laughs> but my Arabic's improved, like, dramatically since I started doing okay. Syria. But nonetheless, I had, like, a little bit of broken Arabic that I could, like, work with, sort of. And they were asking me, what do I study in school? And, like, you're so beautiful and all of this. And I'm just like, oh, this isn't about me. I'm here to visit mm-hmm. you guys. But, like, I was just so touched by the fact that they were happy to see someone from a different world come and acknowledge their situation. Yeah. So so the experience that I had that led me to start Tainit Syria was, um, so I'm surrounded by these little girls. All of a sudden, I feel like a, a warm hand onto mine. I look down, there's a little girl with like two pigtails. She's so cute. She looks up at me and she was just like really happy to see me. The next thing that happens is that she notices the knitted purse that I'm wearing. Nothing special about this knit purse. My mom got it for me from winners for the trip specifically just because it was like a good size to hold my passport and whatever and chapstick. Uh, I didn't even really like it that much. But uh, it symbolizes so much now. So it's it's a knit purse and it's all in these like rainbow colors. Um, And I happened, I just coincidentally happened to be wearing it that day, which ended up sparking a whole experience. So this little girl that was holding my hand, she notices the knitted purse that I'm wearing. Um, And keep in mind, my Arabic is very, very broken at the time. So she looks at the purse um, and she starts pointing at it and she starts yelling this word, this one word, Suf, Suf. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, I have no idea what that means. I just like the whole time I figured that she's like giving me compliments or telling me the purse is nice. So I'm like, thank you, shukran, which means thank you in Arabic. Um, and I sort of like move on. And then she's like really persistent about it. She's like, no, 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 Suf, Suf. And I'm like, 
honey, like, I don't know what you're telling me. <laughs> like, is there a way for you to show me? Like, what is Suf? Like, I tried to make it clear to her. I don't understand what she meant by Suf. Yeah. Can she show me what that means? Um, some, somehow I got that message through to her. She literally takes my hand, brings me to the tent that her family's staying in. She goes inside the tent for a minute. She comes back out, and she's holding this, like, beautiful knitted purple dress made for her age so she's she's like between eight and ten but i'm pretty sure she's eight it has like a crocheted flower on the collar so just imagine seeing this like beautiful handmade purple knit dress and i think there's a there there is a picture of it on our our facebook page yeah it's just so i'm seeing this beautiful knitted dress with this like terrible backdrop of a idp camp (sighs) so it's like a huge dichotomy there too um and then I was just so stunned that it was just so beautiful. And I was like, oh, like, what is this? Who made this? And she's like, I did. I made it. Wow. I'm like, how? And she's like, my grandma and my mom showed me. Wow. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so amazing. And then I was just, like, so excited about this one particular knitted dress. I didn't really think much more of it. I was just like, wow, what a beautiful masterpiece um, in front of this terrible backdrop. So it really yeah. stuck out. It's, like, glowing to me. But then, all of a sudden... Uh, it sparked a whole series of interactions. All of a sudden, uh, these girls were noticing this conversation I was having with the little girl's name, Sepharis. I remember that to this day. I don't really remember anyone else's name, but I remember that girl. Her name was Sepra. All these girls from different ages started approaching me with their own knitted masterpieces. All of a sudden, these people were, like, whipping out all these knitted pieces, like, from, from inside their tents. Really? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, like, what's going on here? And it was like, the things they were showing me were like, kind of funny because it was like things you wouldn't really imagine like conservative Syrians making but it was like fingerless gloves cell phone cases I'm pretty sure I saw a mini skirt I'm pretty sure I saw a crop top I don't even know but it was like all these amazing like knitted pieces so like clearly like there was quite a skill set knitting present in the camp not only that there was like a fiery passion for knitting in the camp Mm. because I investigated further and further and I at one point I started to actually go inside people's tents and sit with them and the families and realized this was like this huge movement in the camp, all these knitted products. Then I investigated further and I realized what what had happened was an, an anonymous donor, okay. um, I don't know if it was anonymous to them, but anonymous to me, had donated a bulk of yarn to the camp mm. um, and somehow they distributed it and then all these people were making all these amazing products. And then Sebra, the same little girl who showed me the purple dress, told me that there's no more yarn. So she wasn't telling me there's no food, there's no water, there's no toys, which I'm sure there was either very limited. There was either none or it was very limited. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that she wanted to translate to me or articulate to me was the fact that there was no yarn left Mm -hmm. out of all things. Random, but like, okay. So important. So important to them. For them, yeah. But you wouldn't really realize that until having this interaction, right? You'd think like, oh, how can I help? Oh, how can I help build shelters? How can I help build a bakery? Like, I had all these outlandish ideas Mm. before that interaction that Mm. were not really realistic. Like, I was like, can I raise money to build a bakery in Aleppo? Like, no, I've never fundraised in my life. Like, why? Mm. Like, there's, it's obviously not the thing I'm supposed to do. But this, this, I was like, it was like a light bulb moment. It was like she had presented like a billboard that said you can help provide yarn yeah like it was just so clear finally finally after two weeks of like asking what is my role in this Mm. i realized it's to help provide yarn but then 
because of the experience I had at Fashion Takes Action, yeah. where I knew that there was a huge demand for sustainably made products, handcrafted pieces, I realized we can take this a step further and actually sell their knitted pieces um, on the North American market, eventually the international market, mm. and actually help them earn some income mm. while uh, contributing to this you know, amazing creative spirit that was like taking over the camp. Um, and that was my light bulb moment. And two and a half years of like darkness and confusion, all of a sudden just like collapsed into a ball of yarn. Um, and then, um, so. So wait, let's, yeah. slow, let's slow down that moment. Okay. So you have these people coming in, like bringing you knit, mm-hmm. knit pieces. Knit pieces. And the girl says, we're out of yarn. Yeah. But you're there. Mm-hmm. And then, was it literally a light bulb moment? It was literally a light bulb moment. It hit me like a bag of bricks. Really? Yeah, it was like, oh my god, this is it. This is it. Like, it was right in front of me. Like, the answer Mm. was like on a pedestal in front of me, glowing, like neon lights, like like, strobe lights. Like, Dana, like, this is what you're supposed to do. Obviously, I didn't just go back to Canada, like, empty-handed. I did my due diligence. Like, I grabbed some uh, business cards from the uh, humanitarian organization that hosted us. Like, I started calculating my brain. Like, what can I do now to make this happen once I go back home? Also, I knew the kind of person that I am. If I sit on an idea for too long, it'll never freaking happen. Mm, So I knew, like, I have to, like, jump on the idea now. Um, So I started... um, Okay, well, I'm trying to see... So... That interaction happened. Okay, there's this like sort of concluding thing that happened in the camp, which I don't talk about a lot because it's like, it's kind of sad. It's like sort of a sublime, bittersweet sort of experience. But basically, after like all that interaction I was having and learning about the yarn and the knitted products they were making, um, the people from the Moran Foundation came to me and they're like, "You have, we have to start leaving. You have to start saying goodbye which is much harder than it sounds in a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to tell the girls, like, I'm sorry, like, I, I have to leave. Um, I'm going to come back with yarn, basically. What colors do you want? Mm. And, like, it just sounds so surreal because it sounds like the end of a novel or something. But, like, I literally was, like, slowly walking away from this group of girls, mm-hmm. telling them that I have to leave and I'm sorry because there's a lot of um, – separation anxiety Mm. with people in those vulnerable situations Mm. and then they have someone sort of kind of create a little bit of an escape for them or a little bit of a distraction in that in that time so I was like telling them I have to leave and they can't come with me they can't follow me they have to stay where they are and then as I'm leaving I'm asking them what colors of yarn they want Mm. and it was just like so surreal because like one after another they're all like raising their hands saying like I want pink I want blue I want white I want yellow and the symbolism around that just inspired me so much because for two whole weeks we were talking about the politics in Syria more than anything. Mm. So in Syria, the civil war basically created two flags, the flags of the regime and the revolutionary flag. And the colors are green, red, white, and black. So Uh like, those are the colors that consumed the minds of Syrians for so long, Mm. is the national colors of our flag. Um, because those colors are in both flags. They're just sort of placed differently. Yeah. So I feel like 
that's all that was consuming Syrian's minds for so long was just like those handful of colors. But these girls were asking for purple, yellow, pink, just like all these bright, beautiful colors. And it just made me realize they saw the world completely differently than how we were seeing, how adults Mm. were seeing the world. And it was very like rigid, streamlined, political, blah, 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 blah way. And they're like, no, like there's so much more to the world. Like, and they still had this sort of like perspective on the world that was so innocent that's so beautiful. And so touching. And just, it, I just felt like it symbolized so much. Um, so then we finally leave the refugee camp, or the IDP camp. Um, there was like a whole series of things that happened there too. Like the cab driver, the driver yeah. didn't show up. And then we were like stuck there for a few hours. and then But we eventually got out. I was like, oh shit, maybe we shouldn't have done this. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have done like, this. <laughs> uh, anyone know where I can get a payphone to call my mom? Um, so we finally are able to leave on our way back to southern Turkey. We get to the hotel that we're staying at in southern Turkey. I go to my room. I grab the little notebook that I had at the time. And I'm like, I need to draft a plan now. Wow, I'm like so hyped on this idea. And I'm like, I mean, just like anything, the first thing that I was thinking about was the name. Because I felt like if I thought of a name, I would make it a thing. Mm -hmm. Like I would just sort of consolidated or I would like sort of solidify it in my brain. Yeah. So then I was like, whatever, playing around with all these names. And then I was just thinking, one thing that I kept thinking back to before that experience in the ID camp, IDP camp, but that was happening within those two weeks was how a lot of Syrians were telling me that Syria used to be such a mosaic mm-hmm. of different cultures, different ethnicities and different religions, like Muslims, Jews, Christians, and all the other minorities in Syria, we they live together in peace. Mm. Um, things were peaceful among the people. The problem was the people versus the government, right? Oh, okay. But the way the government sort of strategically did things was they always find ways to draw lines and divide the people. Mm. I mean, we can see that everywhere in the world right now. Yeah. When governments want to sort of mess things up, they divide the people before yeah. anything. And that's sort of what was happening in Syria. No, that's not sort of what was happening. That's exactly what was happening. But the people themselves kept uh, reminding us, like, Syria is a mosaic. We all live together in peace. Like, this mm. is the people versus the regime, not Shiites versus Sunnis versus Christians versus Jews. Like, that's not important. We all live together in peace. Um, so then I kept, that kept coming to mind. And then basically, Tainit Syria, the name just came to me. Wow. Well, like, symbolic on so many levels. And um, yeah. And then I remember, I would give anything to find that notebook right now. But it was yeah. like, I remember just like this tiny notebook. And then I did like, I never studied like project management or anything. So super informal. I did like a spider web like you would do in like grade two. So I wrote the name Tainit Syria. I did like a circle around it. And basically did like a, a web of anything that I thought could help manifest this vision. So like people I can talk to once I'm back home in Canada. Um, what is this going to look like? Uh, are we going to have a website? Mm. What else? It was mostly people that I was going to sort of like get in contact with. Um, so I had made that plan. I had business cards that I had taken from the 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 officers working at the humanitarian organization who were really excited about the idea because I pitched it to them. Oh, okay. So right after visiting the IDP camp, we went back to southern uh, Turkey where we gave back our, our hats and our vests. And I took that time to sort of basically tell them my idea and like how excited I was about it. And they were like, okay, we'll help you with this. Mm. Um, and then, so I wrote in my notebook, went back to Canada, 
still like so high on what the hell I had just experienced in the span mm-hmm. of two weeks that was completely life-changing or very transformative in terms of my perspective on myself and yeah. the world in relations to the world as well um and I went back and I was just basically sharing the story like non-stop and like obviously everybody identified with it because it, compared to like all the shit that we were seeing in the media all the time and on the front page newspaper and everybody's like opinions and all of this we were now talking about knitting of mm-hmm. all things mm-hmm. um and then sort of the 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 thing that sort of really helped kind of launch us a little bit was two things i'm gonna say number one i was like totally anxious about starting anything yeah so anxious i think how it all started thank goodness i was sharing the story because they might the people around me were holding me accountable. I loved I'm actually just gonna ask you that. I was yeah. gonna say So what gave you the confidence that you were to actually go and do it? There was zero confidence to yeah. be honest. I was so inspired by the story, but when I was back in reality, all of a sudden that like high on life mm-hmm. feeling and like being so like motivated by these like first hand stories that I was hearing that yeah. were fueling me constantly. I was now back in like everyday reality. Like yeah. I forget, was I working at the a restaurant at the time? I forget. But um, that's where I really needed courage at the end of the day because I was sort of introducing this like completely new idea in a very sort of like in the box environment. Like things like just. You know, like when I was in Turkey, I was already out of the box. Anything was possible there. Now I'm home, and things are always going a certain way. And I was now gonna try and shake that up. You're gonna fall back into your routine. I love that you said the thing that made the difference was sharing with people, and those people held you accountable. Yeah, I think that's probably the most critical piece. Yes. And like I think people often are afraid to share yeah. about what they want to create mm-hmm. because it's like, well, it may not happen. Yeah. But in reality, when you don't share, yeah. it most likely won't happen. Exactly, exactly. Um, it because it really is a flame under your butt. Mm-hmm. Um, so telling people and share and talking out loud about your idea is important because people will come back to you and be like, what happened with that? And then you're going to have to ask yourself, yeah, what did happen with that? (laughs) And one thing in terms of accountability or not so much accountability, but in terms of the first move, which honestly, it's such a small link that if that little tiny thing did not happen, I don't know if tiny theory would have happened, but my cousin, my, so I have two cousins. So the cousin that I had that experience with, her Mm -hmm. name is Nusha. And then I had my other cousin, Sharaf. It's an Arabic name. It means okay. passion in Arabic. It's a little hard to pronounce, I'm sure. But um, she was actually staying with us in uh, in Mississauga. Um, I forget why she was like doing uh, something. I forget. Um, so she was staying with us there, and then um, she told me. So I shared the story with her, and she's like, "You need to make a Facebook page." Mm. That's the tiny link I think between Tainet Syria being an idea and Tainet Syria being an actual organized reality Mm. and I was like oh I'm not ready I don't have any content I don't have anything like how could I start a Facebook page and she's like well you have a story don't you Mm. and I was like yeah but I don't have anything else and she's like it doesn't matter start a Facebook page oh I love that and then that was just like another series of accountability I was like oh well now I've made a Facebook page and all my friends and family are following it and they're gonna be expecting something so that it's so funny because in the entirety of all of that whole adventurous like journey the thing where I needed the most courage was starting the Facebook page Mm. um and so I think the original picture I didn't even have a logo or anything at the time it was like 
somehow I acquired a picture of the purple dress and I think I got it from Moran Foundation because mm. I hadn't taken any pictures. So I think I inquired with them and asked them if they can take the picture and then I somehow got a picture of it. Uh, I think that might have been me, the profile pic. And then, and then in the like about us, I wrote basically the whole origin story. Um, and then just little by little, like I started sharing articles about like happy things or like mm. inspirational stories. Um, which started sort of to solidify the philosophy around tight-knit yeah. which is a huge contrast to what I was experiencing before, which was like I would go to these fundraisers and then just want to go home and like curl yeah. up in a ball, where I realized because we were being so bombarded with all these negative images, it made us feel powerless. So I made it my mission to make tight-knit Syria's philosophy about just like staying inspired, staying um, productive, and just in order to do that, you do need to expose yourself to inspirational stories. Yeah. Um, so that's why like you'll not see anything negative on China Syria. Although obviously educate yourself on the reality of things, yeah. but like for China Syria, we're here to fuel you with inspiration and a sense mm. of you can do anything. Mm. Um, so I love this. This yeah. is actually so great. I think your two things of sharing and creating <coughs> that Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I think seem inconsequential to most people. Yeah. Like, that's not that big of a yeah, thing. It is. It's not that big of a yeah. step. But it's like, when you actually take one step, mm-hmm. then you can take another step. Exactly. And then you can take another step. And then you can take another exactly. step. And all those steps are holding you accountable the entire way, yeah. right? All those steps are a flame under your butt. Because now you've exposed yourself. You put yourself out there. Yeah. There's no better way to be productive, honestly. Yeah. You're just at home. You're going to take your sweet-ass time. And generally, it'll t- that sweet-ass time can end up being your lifetime. Yeah. So putting yourself out there, being in a vulnerable position, like whatever. Yeah. Like that's not going to last very long. But your vision is going to last a lifetime if you want to pursue it. 